Welcome to episode 181 of Control the Controllables. And a big Merry Christmas to you all. I hope you've had uh, a fantastic few days with your family. I hope you've eaten way too much turkey and way too many chocolates and starting to get ready as we get close to moving into 2023. Now, today we have a former top 30 in the world doubles player, a tennis parent, a tennis coach, and now one of the most famous tennis commentators there is out there. Oh, what a rally! Reflexes like a mongoose on amphetamines. They're from Mazza. <laughs> and some of you would have heard many of those amazing comments and wondered, I wonder who that is. Well, that is Robbie Koenig. You know, listen out for him. You know, I love watching matches when Robbie is commentating. He brings it to life. He does it in a fun manner. And he also brings incredible insight into the tennis. And this conversation actually happened, it happened a few weeks ago. And as life goes, you know, I ended up being asked to go to the ATP Tour Finals. We ended up take going to Davis Cup for a few days. And then we had a chance to speak to Harry and Lloyd, who was our last episode. So they jumped in front of Robbie. But it's a one worth waiting for. Because a bit like Mark Petchy, if you listen to Mark Petchy, Mark Petchy comes with so many layers of the sport. You know, and as I said there at the beginning, as a as a tennis coach, as a former player, as a tennis tennis parent, and as a commentator, you tend to have lots of different lenses, and that really makes for a fascinating chat. And this certainly was. You know, Robbie has a passion that's unrivaled. His son Luke, who's 19 years old, is starting out on his tennis journey. So we get into that, as well as many other subjects that I'm sure you're all going to love. But without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Robbie Koenig. So Robbie Koenig, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? DK, um, I've been a big follower of your show for a long time and the podcast in particular. Uh, so many good guests and it's super cool to be on it, man. I feel honored. Well, it's you, you've been on the list for a long time. And, and and actually, you've even been talked about as someone with, that should flip the flip the mic and and you do you interview me. A couple of people have mentioned that. and and when we asked people, they said, who should do that and and your name came up. So I, I know our listeners are, are very excited and and I am as well, Robbie. So thanks for coming on. And I, I think the starting point for me is the changing of the guard. 2022 I think it, it's going to go down as a year you know in, in the history of tennis and so many things have happened it feels over the last few weeks and you know we've got Alcaraz taking place of Federer we've got Iga taking place of Serena so how's 2022 been for you give us give us your take on the landscape of tennis throughout this year well, it's been fascinating, first of all, to, to see the emergence of the young guys, um, the amount of talent that is out there. We always worry about who's going to you know, take over the mantle from the big four when you throw Andy Murray in the mix as well, especially the big three. But uh, I like what I'm seeing, first of all. I think first and foremost, that's, uh, that's number one for me. Um, going back to the start of the year, I didn't enjoy everything that shook out with Novak. 
Uh, I thought he should have been allowed to play. I thought he had most of his ducks in a row. Um, and, and I guess similarly for the US Open, I wish he'd been able to play there. I couldn't imagine anything better than Alcaraz taking on Novak for, for all, the, all the marbles. Um, you know, two guys who are just the most exquisite of movers. Novak on a hard court. We know what uh, Alcaraz is doing on a hard court. So I would have loved to have seen that unfold. So uh, I've been somewhat disappointed. I just want to see the best players being able to compete. Yeah, week absolutely. Week. That's what I want, eh, DK. Yeah. Um, I think that's what fans live for, um, is those, those big heavyweight matchups. Um, and obviously now with Alcaraz getting to number one in the world, post-US Open, and, um, you know, just the, the variety that he's shown at such a young age, I think that's what struck us all. Although certainly in the in the media and commentating industry, we, we speak about it a lot behind the scenes and you know, we marvel that at such a young age, he's got so many tools at his disposal. But for I think for, for me in particular, it's it's the mental toughness that this guy has. You know, so often I, I use his stats in deciding set tie breaks. I think he's 11 and 1 in his career, right? right yeah. career. He's only lost one. I think he lost at the Australian Open to Berrettini this year. The, the only time he's lost a deciding set tie break. Yeah. Just shows you how clutch he is. His clutch yeah. factor is right up there, man. Yeah. Um, fearless tennis and the ability to produce is, I think, is exciting all of us. So, um, you know, there's a lot to look forward to. But, I mean, Yannick Sinner for me is, is going to be a guy who challenges him on a regular basis. But Novak is going to be there. Um, I'd like to see Danny Medvedev start to get some of his form back. I think it's been a tough time for the Russian guys. Again, it was pretty hard what uh, what went down here for them in the UK, not being able to play at Wimby. A tough decision, man. Uh, I think in the locker room, I think a fair few people uh, thought they might be hard done by. But it is what it is. And I just hope that next year is a, a lot more seamless and that we're back to 100%. I hope everybody is allowed to play everywhere. Yeah, it's fair. The, the, the politics, we'll remember this for the year of politics as well, won't we, in, in the sport? And, you know, there's there's been, but there has been storylines left, right and centre. But I, I, do, I do think, and we do... Uh, uh, a preview and a review show of of the every Grand Slam, and we were talking before Wimbledon, obviously as everyone else was about about what was going on. We were talking in Australia about Novak. We were, but once the tennis started in every Grand Slam this year, you yeah. almost forgot. You almost forgot, and I think that says a lot about the tennis and and these youngsters that are coming through. And that the, it it clearly goes to Alcaraz as the big talking point on the men's side. Um, I think Eager is almost going under the radar if that can happen on on the women's side. You know, she's she's won three Grand Slams and she's just won so many matches this year that she's kind of established herself. Let's not forget Ash Barty also stopped playing this year, you know, and how, how that's happened, you know, how that seems like almost a lifetime away. Um, but I, I when you were talking there, because I, I know uh, as commentators and I know you, Robbie, you do your research and you know the game and you know the game at all the levels. When did you first see Carlos? Is that, has he been on your radar for a while? Is he someone that, you know, you saw, you saw coming from a young age or has he just kind of appeared? Um, My son, he's, my son is 19. He's a half decent player and, and he was practicing, um, 
when was this end of 2020 with a, a, a local English kid who's uh, who's pretty good. Um, his name escapes me now. Um, he was playing in the US Open Juniors. And he practices regularly in Spain. And and my Luke had played against Lorenzo Mazzetti. Yeah. And uh, I commentated on him at the Junior Aussie Open final. And we're speaking about how good uh, Lorenzo was as a junior. And he says, he's good, but I'm telling you, I've been practicing with this other kid in Spain called Carlos Alcaraz. And this kid is even better, he reckoned. And I said, what? Better than Mazzetti? I haven't seen him play. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I'd have to see it firsthand. So that's when it first came onto my radar that there was this guy out there from Spain who was pretty good, but I hadn't seen much of him play. And then I heard a story on the ATP tennis uh, radio. I think it was Barry Cowan that was interviewing Ricardo Piatti, and he was talking about a match that Sinner played, um, I think it was back in 2018, actually against this young kid. And he was a three-love in the deciding set, and he was only 17 at the time, was Sinner. Uh, three love up he was in the deciding set, ended up losing at 6-3. Ricardo wasn't on the road with him, came home and, he, and Ricardo said, I'm glad you lost to somebody younger than you because you've had so much success at 17 already that you know if you lost to somebody who was older than you, you wouldn't care as much. You, you would use it as an excuse. But now that you've lost to somebody younger than you, I want you to remember as well that when you're up three love in the third, you've got to put your, your foot on their neck. And this young kid that he lost to was Carlos Alcaraz. So once again, that was just another, you know, little peg there on, on the line. Uh, okay, who's this kid? Man, this kid must be pretty good. And then I started watching him make his way uh, through the challenger events. And that's when he, you know, maybe two years ago, he, he really came onto my radar in a big way. But even still, I cannot believe how meteoric the RAS has been and how quickly everything has come together and what a complete player he is. No, it, it, it's it, it's phenomenal. And, and it's, You've, you've probably heard, if you've heard the podcast, I've spoken about it before, but I, I I saw him almost three years ago now. It's mad how time flies. And speaking to Juan Carlos, Juan Carlos was like, look, this guy's already a top 100 player. You know, he really is. And he was. And he won two 15Ks, start of the year, basically like challenger events. And the excitement level that when he walks on the court, he, he brings. But but Robbie, I want I want to get to you. But before I get to you, I, I, I have to mention the Lever Cup. And the reason I have to mention the Lever Cup, I am absolutely not an advocate of the Lever Cup. However... I hardly missed a ball this year. So so what I'm wondering is, was that just the emotion, the Federer factor? I think, you know, it's almost been talked to death. We've talked to death on the podcast about it, but it, it was it was just incredible. You know, we sat there crying. It felt like we were all together. The tennis tennis community was one, and we just kind of had this three days of crying, basically. But is once that settles and that's gone, and 2023 Labour Cup comes around, mm. does it go back to being a bit of a naff exhibition that we're not so sure about? Or is this going to become the real deal of an event? Yeah, I mean, so far, you know, they've had all the top guys playing. So that's been so key. Uh, will Rafa and Novak continue to play on it as it... Uh, as it continues to evolve, um, obviously there's not a lot of years left for them anyway. And without Roger, Roger is the you know the ultimate pull factor in the sport. There's no one like him. 
So uh, I'm fascinated to see how that shakes out. You know, is is, is Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner and Steph Tsitsipas and, and and these kind of guys able to carry an event like that? I honestly don't know the answer. I, I would probably say not right now. If you ask me, I would say those guys will not be able to carry the event like it's been carried. And, you know, I guess the tickets are expensive. You're paying a lot for these guys, obviously, to be there. Uh, there's, a, there's a structure in place so that the agents can't really negotiate. I think there was something that the teammate did very intelligently, you know, depending on what your ranking is. If you're a former world number one, or if you were a former Grand Slam champion, you got top dollar and then it gets bracketed down from there on in. So, you know, you're paying these guys a lot of money to be part of it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure there should be, it should be count, counting towards the head-to-head given the format. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that. Listen, I've been part of uh, all the Labour Cups. I haven't been part of the last two. I couldn't get a visa last year and I had my 25th wedding anniversary this year. So I, I wasn't part of it. But they're amazing events. The energy around there, the energy that Rog creates. I mean, you've, you've probably watched him live on numerous occasions. Yeah. It's just, I've never been around it like that in tennis. And of course, with Novak and, and Rafa, that brings the best out of him because they, you know, they are characters very different to him. And I think that dynamic plays out well. You know, the, yeah. the yin and the yang, I think it's so important in rivalries. You know, basically, Rafa is exactly the opposite to everything that, that Rogers. And then you've got Novak, who's got an edge to him that, you know, kind of uh, ignites the crowd like, uh, like no one else. So it's very difficult to, to replicate that dynamic. So um, right now, I would say the next two editions might be tough. They certainly, I don't think they will be as good as the last couple that they've had off the top of my head. Yeah. And and in terms of, uh, it's a bigger picture topic, but it's tennis, <laughs> Ten, yeah. our, our passion. You know, we, we, we all love it. And uh, uh, the team, the team events do tend to get people going, the interest going, you know, a, a little bit different to maybe outside of Grand Slam. Certainly, you know, we hear a lot of, negativity and you're on the call face week in week out so it'd be great to hear your thoughts on where that's at but is there space for more team events you know people say there is uh yet world world team tennis is just kind of whatever just thrown in there it's not it's not really an established an established global event you know we've then had the big arguments around atp cup and davis cup the changing of of how that happens so people are maybe a little bit less interested in in those events than they once were you know is tennis getting a little bit caught up in trying to be modern and bring in these new events compared to the tradition of what tennis is at and and I guess where where do we where do we go with it? You know, cricket have rebranded in so many ways. Twenty twenty, the hundreds. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's sports that are, are, are fighting. They're fighting for that space right now. You know, what's your what's your take on that bigger picture? Um, I do think it's important to try and be innovative. I think if you stand still for too long and rest on your laurels and don't innovate, certainly in a in an age where we are now, Dan. Um, I think if you don't give it a try, I think you would be doing yourself a disservice as a sport. 
And for me, the ultimate barometer is the reactions from the fans. Do you put bums on seats? Do you create a great atmosphere? Because if you tick those two boxes, I love the event. I don't care what it is. Yep. Because for me, that's the ultimate barometer at the end of the day. Um, whether it has points or doesn't have points, or if, you know, if, if some people think it's a Mickey Mouse event, that's no problem. I just point towards the fan experience. Is the venue full? Yes, they must be doing something right. And, and outside of the slams, Lever Cup, is that the case? Um, Davis Cup in some of the venues was good. I don't commentate Davis Cup. Uh, Nick Lester was giving me some good feedback on that. He said certainly in Spain. But, of course, you've got, you've got the benefit of, of Rafa playing there and you're going to have Carlos Alcaraz in years to come. So, you know, that is a host city anywhere in Spain, I think, is going to be well supported. Some of the other venues, not so much. Um, but, but I think that's very easy to track. Uh, you know, when we're at tournaments, we get to see which tournaments are well supported. There is no question combined events are better for the fan experience. I think yeah, I agree. moving forward, if we can we can get those Masters 1000s to, to be combined events, make sure we have enough facilities. That's always a big problem, right? Enough practice courts um, for everybody there when we increase the draw size. Uh, that's, that's the biggest challenge, you know, the infrastructure. But there is no doubt that's a one. And I've got a sneaky feeling that the, the ATP Cup is going to um, evolve into a mixed event. That's what I'm hearing from tennis uh, yeah, sources. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's great for the sport. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I I used to love the Hopman Cup, and yeah. and actually, if I go to the Olympics, it, it, it's the mixed events like the mixed doubles, whether it's badminton or uh, the the triathlon. It was like a sprint triathlon, mixed sprint triathlon. There's something special about it. It gives a, it gives a bit of a different feel, and I think there's definitely space for that. But my uh, your your number. I'm going to get all my guests to have like a little patch with their number, and I think I think you're you're going to be 180. You know, so a very special number. You know, you'll get you get you some darts as well to go with it. But it's you know with your with your number and and the 180 podcasts that there's been, pretty much everyone that tells me their story is 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 got a. Tennis is in the blood already. Okay. It's already there. It's it, it's either it's a parent, it's an auntie, it's an uncle, it's a grandfather, it's a it's a local club across the road, which tells me we're not opening up the sport that well to just new people, people that don't know tennis, no, you know, people that haven't had tennis in their lives. Now, are you gonna tell me? that you are one that just randomly got into the sport, or are you going to tell me that it's in the blood? Something tells me it was in the blood. Yeah, uh, very much in the blood in the family. Um, my uncle on, on my dad's side, you know, he was a decent tennis player. I think he played in the French Open. Uh, he represented South Africa in Davis Cup competition. So Decent, you know, decent. I would yeah. say he's more than decent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's quite a while back. Uh, Guy Koenig uh, was his name. Guyton um, is his full name. I mean, he must be eighty now, eighty three now. As Uncle Guy, 
So, you know, there was always that. My brother was a very good player. He is the same age as Kevin Curran, a Durban boy. Obviously, uh, Kevin's a Durban boy as well. They went to um, uh, opposing high schools. And, you know, he was as good as Kevin Curran. And um, when Kevin decided to go to the University of Texas on a tennis scholarship, he said, Carl, said to my brother, Carl, you need to, we need to head over there together, man. That's the place to be. Uh, my mum wouldn't have any of it. You know, my brother's quite a bit older than me. There's 14 years between us. And she said, no, you've got to go and get a proper degree from a proper university. And um, that kind of scuppered his tennis career. Uh, he went and studied law, became a very successful lawyer, I might add. But he never really had the opportunity to see how good he could be at tennis. Um, and I've got two more sisters between him and myself. And then by the time I came around and I was showing a bit of promise, and I kind of had to make a decision, do I go to college in the States or do I go pro? And he'd always said to me, if I need some financial help, um, he'd be there for me. My folks didn't have a lot of money. So I, I couldn't rely on them. And I actually turned down going to college in the States um, to be part of Tennis South Africa's high-performance squads. They just increased the size of the squad from four players. There was four players that traveled to eight they had a bit more funds and I became part of the second tier squad. And yeah, I made the decision to do that. And um, that's pretty much how my pro career unfolded, but definitely in the family D. And yeah, you know, I think back in the eighties when I was growing up playing tennis, tennis was massive eh? in South Africa. We had you know, a lot of players that were flying the flag, you know, Johan Creek and Kevin Curran, even though they ended up playing under the US flag, everybody knew that they were they were local boys. So a lot of eyeballs on them, a lot of good women players as well, women players as well. And tennis was such a big sport, man. It was front and center. You know, you, the clubs were pumping. I mean, I know you're in Spain and it's a very similar sort of feel, <clears throat> excuse me, feel to an SA where it was the place to be on a Saturday and Sunday. Mm. You know, that's where everybody went to hang out, the tennis clubs. They were huge, man. Tennis clubs were pumping. Memberships were right up there. And and your your memories of childhood, good memories. Did you have a difficult childhood? Did you have a, a relatively easy plain sailing childhood? How how was that? I had an amazing childhood. Um very, very lucky. You know, even though we didn't come from a lot, we never felt like we lacked anything. Uh, I mean, I had some epic battles with my next door neighbor, Mark Oliver. Uh Mark was like three years older than me, he wasn't as good as me. But uh, because he was older, he was always a tough out. Yeah. I mean, and uh, we'd have some, we'd have battles royal. And he had an old tarmac court, like like you guys have here, actually. But, you know, cracks running through it. And I actually used to play barefoot until I was about 12 years oh, really? of age. I, I just loved it. Um, and if I won the opening set against Mark, he would stand by the gate and not let me go. <laughs> because he had to, he had to win. Uh, before I was allowed to go home. So he'd just stand there and bully me and say, no, we're not going anywhere. You, you've got to stay here. And I'd say, hang on, Mark, I just need to get a sip of water. The tap was outside. I need a sip of water and then I'll be good to go. And he said, okay. And he'd step aside and I'd have a sip of water. And I said, you have a sip of water. He have a sip of water. As his head went down to sip the water, I just bolted <laughs> down the driveway, turned the corner and up my driveway. He was chasing me right to the front door. I can't tell you how often that happened, but I absolutely loved it. You know, I played league, a lot of league tennis uh, when I was younger. I played like mixed league, men's doubles, men's singles from 
you know, the age of 13 or 14, and it was strong, man. You know, the guys I played against were good club players. Um, so I had a lot of good match play. It wasn't that much drilling. Yeah. There's one thing I could do. I'd like a little bit more drilling. I only discovered that much later, Dan, when I started to travel overseas where, you know, you put in a lot of reps. We do backhands and forehands cross court, but, you know, specific basket feeding to hone my technique. I wish I'd done a bit more of that when yeah. I was younger. But and it's match, getting, match play was never an issue. But it's getting the balance, isn't it? Because potentially some yeah. people have gone the other way, you know, and they, and they miss the match play. And they yeah. certainly... They certainly miss out on that club doubles, you know, that playing against all sorts of ages, stages of of, of life, you know, learning the tricks of the trade, learning yeah. all, all the different shots, learning, learning how to hold your own on the court, you know, all of those bits that I think have stand so many players in good stead. And it's why South Africa's had a lot of good doubles players over the years. Yeah. The UK has, Australia has, you know, people that have come from, from, from that sort of background. Um, my, my one thing I'd love to, I'd love to get your thoughts on actually, Robbie is again, uh, as I'm speaking to everyone, there's so, I, I mean, I'm so fortunate to do this. I, I, I really do love having these conversations and, it's, yeah, me too. Me too. I absolutely love it. It's fantastic to just to just to pick people's brains and share his stories and find out and 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 where there's there's some quite clear, like I say, tennis is in the blood. That's quite a clear standout picture that that's coming through. But one that I'm a little bit conflicted on yeah. is some people have this great childhood and it's relatively easy and you know off they go into the world and do they think whereas some people and we hear a lot from athletes they have they have traumas they have they have challenges of, of, of different sorts i had ryan peniston on last week you know he, he was diagnosed with cancer age age one you know but they attribute their successes often down to the trauma because of the resilience and the the perspectives and the, all of these bits, so uh, obviously you you would pick a happy childhood over a traumatic childhood, but mm. which which one which one puts you in the best place to succeed down the line? Um, I'm going to answer that question by saying there's not too many players that I've ever come across. Uh, that have not had to deal with a fair amount of adversity yep. in some form, Dan. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't necessarily mean a traumatic childhood, but, you know, for me, let's say, let's I speak from my perspective initially. It's when I made the decision not to go to college in the States, I knew that was a huge thing. And I knew financially I had to make this work. Yep. So it was all in, man, the training, the diet, the everything I was completely in. Um because if, if I didn't make some decent money out of this space, I didn't have anything to fall back on. Yeah. And that was my motivation. I couldn't fall back and, and rely on my mom and dad. Um, so, yeah, a, a lot of motivation came from that. I wasn't as talented as a lot of the other guys that I grew up playing with, the likes of Wayne Ferreira, Grant Stafford and Marcus Andruska, Kevin Elliott. You know, these guys are top 10, top 20 singles players. Kevin's won multiple majors. Um, so the work ethic was always instilled in, into me by my older brother. So, and I always believe as well, in order to be good, you're going to have to go through some sort of period of pain for a while. 
and pain as in you know discomfort um, and adversity. Yeah. Uh, you know, different guy. Roger Federer, we, we speak about how talented Roger. Roger used to have to go when he was 14 and stay away from his parents, you know, Monday to Friday, he hated it, cried every time he left on a, on a Sunday night. All these guys, Nadal, you know, the upbringing from Uncle Tony, the amount of hours that he put on the courts. I'm telling you, there's probably a lot of times there when it wasn't fun to be out there. So I absolutely believe that anybody who's a champion in the sport and has done significant things in the game, you know, you know, professional is a guy who makes money out of the sport. Um, you know, you play good challenger level and onto the pros, you've had to sacrifice an immense uh, amount of stuff throughout the course of your life. And there will be, you know, different degrees of adversity. Does more adversity make you a better player? I think if I had to give a stock standard answer, I would say yes. I am... Um... I share a quick story. I won't say a name. Yeah. I won't say a name, but I I came across this. It's a parent of a of a player that I I've come into contact with. And and I spoke to her her recently. And she is one of the only females that's at a certain level in in the, the big bank in Australia. And I, I when I spoke to her, she she opened up about her story and of what happened back in back in Serbia back in the day and how she got split up from her family from such a young age and anyway this 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 whole story when she told the story it just made complete sense and she said something to me she said because of that I have zero need or necessity for anything material anything so <clears throat> she said i can move house i can i can move house every couple of years that's yeah. that's that's not a problem however what i do have is an absolute need to prove that i can be the best in what i do you know mm. and, and that's the that's the way that she she used that and 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 i think we do tend to see it djokovic spoke the other day and he said you know i had no choice i was i was going to be i was i had to be a tennis player i had to you know put me under any immense pressure. I, I, I don't feel that after what I went through and what we had yeah. to do to enable me to get onto the tennis court. And I think those are some of the bits. And I think you're right to bring it up about the adversity. It doesn't have to be a trauma. So if I bring that back to you, Robbie, what was the biggest adversity that you went through throughout your career that, that maybe you might even pinpoint because you've had a very successful career after tennis as well and doing an amazing job and I'm not just blowing smoke up your backside you are absolutely one of the best out there on the TV commentary and in, in, in what you do so what what was the the big adversities are the when you look back the hardest bits that you had to go through um in 1991 I'd started to play you know satellites back in the days um and, and I did okay there and then 92 I started to play a few more challenger qualities and tour event qualifying. Back then, you know, if you were ranked 300 in the world, you could get into qualities of just about any tour event. It wasn't like it is these days. And I figured if I wanted to see how good I was, I needed to just start playing qualities at tour events. As soon as I could get in, I needed to play. And I started to qualify a couple of events in 92, did well at Washington, won a couple of rounds there, third or fourth round. Um, 
and things were going swimmingly. And then early in 93, I had some really bad knee problems with my, uh, my quadriceps tendon going into the top of the knee there. Unbelievable pain. And towards the end of 94, I was pretty much, I couldn't, I couldn't run. And after having this, this great start and doing well and qualifying in singles and a few dubs events as well and you know, making some money, back then I had, I, I remember when I had to stop in 94, I had like $40,000 in my, in my bank account. I thought I was a rock star, Dan. <laughs> I thought I was a rock star. But, um, and suddenly this has all come to an end now. I had to go back and, and have an operation and they didn't do any major surgery. They did keyhole surgery the first time. Uh, so I was out for four months. I stepped back onto the court and I've got exactly the same pain. I trained for two weeks, no better. The, the initial surgery was no good. Had to go back and have big surgery after that, which kept me out for about nine months. So I ended up being out for about 11 months and then the comeback after that. And I tell you what, that was dark times for me um, in terms of my tennis. I was wondering like, you know, what am I going to be like when I come back to be out for this long the best part about that, the silver lining to that all was that was the time when I met my wife because I ended up being at home and being in one place for a you know decent amount of time. So that was the greatest blessing that came out of that whole, um, that period in uh, 94, 95. Um, but from a tennis perspective, I did, uh, yeah, I really did worry as to, you know, again, how am I going to make an, a living? Haven't got the university degree to fall back on. So that was in the back of my mind. But again, it motivated me to be incredibly disciplined. That's when I started to read books and Tony Robbins. That's when I discovered Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. That was a book that, that changed my outlook on life um, and the ability to control your mind. And I got into mental training in a big way back in, you know, 90, that would have been about 96. Um, and you know, I felt that that's always been an, a big strength of mine going forward. It wasn't a big deal back then. Um, and I discovered it by chance, really. And I worked a lot on mental training. John Keogh's book, Mind Power, one of the best books I've ever read. Small book, great starter book for people who want to get into mental training. Kids 17, 18, 19, so simple. And I stumbled across some of these books. And then I really started to work very intelligently on my mind, getting that right, the thought processes behind that. Um, I was a big advocate of um, Eat to Win. That was a book that my brother passed on to me, the, you know, the sports nutrition Bible back in the day. And uh, I had all this time on my hands, so I was doing a lot of reading. And I fine-tuned my diet. And I remember when I came back after that lengthy layoff, almost 13 months in total, I've never hit the ground running so well in my life. Cool. And the buy-in, Dan, from everything I had been doing was – was right up there. That's when I knew I had to be good mentally and I had to be really disciplined with my diet because I'd never woken up every morning with so much energy and just wanting to just kill the tennis court. It was the best feeling ever. So out of that that real hard adverse time came this, you know, this uh, I guess this time of discovery for me. Because that would be quite abnormal for that time as well. The, the people weren't, it wasn't as mainstream certainly as now that you're working with sports psychologists or working on the mind or, or, or working on the nutrition you know that's I guess the point I'm also getting to here Robbie is you at that age 24 25 sort of age I get what, what how old yeah, were you there absolutely spot on 
Yeah. So, so at, at that age, that seems like quite a mature thing to take on as well. You know, if you think 24, 25 year olds nowadays, you know, if, unless, unless it's almost put on their plate mm. and on their lap, it's, it's very, there's a lot of intrinsic motivation that seems to, seems to be coming through there. So where, where's that intrinsic motivation come from? It actually came from my father-in-law initially who, you know, I had all this time on my hand and he said one of the best books he ever read was um, Dale Carnegie's book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yep, good book. That was one of the, yeah, that was one of the first books that I ended up reading. Um, I had all this time on my hand, you know, I'd do the rehab every day, but then there's not a lot more you can do. And, and it's funny, Dan, because I was never a reader at school, ever. And it was only at, at this stage that I, I started to become a, a big reader and I enjoyed it so much initially. And that was the book. And then I'd heard about this guy called Anthony Robbins. And then his book was incredible. The, the, uh, the, the level of, of detail and everything on how to train the mind together with John Keogh's book, Mind Power. Um, John Keogh actually was speaking in South Africa at the time. And I went to listen to one of his talks and I was just, you know, so motivated after listening to him speak and, he spoke about how you condition your mind, how you can train it. It's a muscle like any other yep. muscle in your body, and you have to work on it on a daily basis. And that, you know, you know, 10 minutes every day is much better than 70 minutes once a week. You know, that, you know, consistency is the only currency that matters sort of thing. And I kind of learned that then. And um, that helped me immensely, man. That was fantastic during those tough times. And that was my, my adverse time there, no question. But so much positive come, comes out of it, you know, when, when you're in trouble and you have to dig and search and find solutions, right. you know, you, you become, you become almost obsessed to find solutions. You know, I, I almost feel like I'm a knee guru when it comes to the knee yeah. and how to look after a knee now. Um, you know, when I see players, that got knee problems. I almost want to run down to them and say, Hey man, I've got so many good things that I'd never heard from specialists that I've discovered. I'd love to share it with you. Um, you know, trial and error. But that's a, that, that wave, that outlook, because there's there's opportunity and threat, isn't there? The way the mind works, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think naturally the human brain tends to go to threat, you know, but being able to switch adversity into opportunity, because in, in one thing I, I read and I've really taken it with me, it was I've, I ever read it or I heard somebody in a talk is when something bad happens say good in your head and hmm. it's yeah. something i've really really tried to do and, and that's control the controllables that's where control hmm. the controllables really uh, uh, took off in my head in 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 everything that happened so the pandemic was the biggest test of that and you know running a an international tennis academy in spain where you rely on people flying to you or players flying out to tournaments and training. And this bloody thing rocks up where all of a sudden none of us can leave our house. That was a big challenge to say good, but we managed to, and collectively as a team, we managed to go, okay, good. There's opportunity here. We don't know, we don't know what the opportunity is yet. But there is there is opportunity here, and and the first thing that we then were able to do is everyone was saying, "You can't do this. We can't play tennis. We can't go to the gym. 
We can't. And and so we on the first day of the pandemic back March, it was March 14th. We went in in Spain for eight weeks. We we started the We Can project. Stop telling us what you can't do, you know, and every single player, coach, parent at the academy had to fill in a document and it was called the We Can Project. And and just that that small shift of 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 mind to be able to to t- look at the opportunity is is huge. And it's it's something I wish I had when I was a player. You know, I'd love to whinge at the umpire and whinge at the bad draw I got and the bloody or the usual nonsense that tennis players do. So so that takes me into Robbie. You're now a tennis parent. You know, yes. you, you know, you're very much a tennis parent. I know I believe you've got three children. Um mm-hmm. You know, Luke is the one I see. I do. I see his results. Uh, I see. I see them coming in. I know. You know, he's ranked ATP about twelve hundred and just gone to Baylor University. Is that? He goes, yeah, he goes in January. That's right. Yeah. That's January. So, 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 what are your key messages now as a as a tennis parent? Because you've you've got so much. You've lived so much. But it's 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 there's a lot of information we want to give. But if you if you're going to tie it down to two or three key messages, what are your repeatable messages that you're passing on to your kids? In particular, Luca, if he's playing, he's playing to an international level. I think to other parents, the first thing I would I would tell them is that tennis is a team sport. Growing up, okay. you need other players around you. I am such a big advocate of the best kids training together. I do not like this idea of having different training bases to accommodate people all over the country. Uh, I think the best players need to come together. And if for whatever reason, uh, Dan up in Wales can't come down to the NTC to train, yes, we can try and help him out as much as we can, funding, catch the train back and forward. But to be around other kids that have a strong mentality, good talent level. I just have a look back at the programs that work the best. And that is, there is no question that that is the way it works best. I grew up with so many good players around me, just in Durban, where I was, you know, lots of guys ended up going to college in the States, Ellis Ferreira. You know, he, he won a couple of majors and doubles, Kevin Elliott, and a lot of good college. We must have had 12 or 15 guys that squat on a Monday and a Friday. Um, to train with at least college level. So that would be number one. Don't think your kid is is so special that they need to practice on their own and not mix with other kids. Uh, I think that's the number one way to kill kill a kid's uh, interest in the sport because Neville Godwin actually said a great thing to me. He says, my number one goal when I'm working with talented kids is to still keep them in the sport by the time they're 18. And, uh, you know, I've just watched my boy come come through now and he's, he's 19 years of age and Neville is spot on. Um, and I think if you can have a coach that can teach them good discipline, whatever that discipline might be, doesn't have to necessarily be practicing for four hours every day, but just consistency of discipline. You know, do your bands, do your stretching, hit your serves on your own. Um, I think that would be the second one if you can try and implement that. Uh, and I think third, you know, my, my doubles partner, John Lafney Diego, 
he always thinks it's very important to have a, a strong relationship with the parents. And you have to almost coach the parents as much as you have to coach the kids. Um, and he runs a very successful program up in Johannesburg. And, and he is on the parents' cases a lot, you know, speaking to them, trying to educate them, whether they want to hear it or not. Whether it's a tough message he's giving, he's very good at delivering it in the, in, in, in the right way. Um, because you've got to have them on board, man. They're the ones who are doing the fetching and the carrying every day, taking the kids to practice. And um, I think it was uh, Missy Franklin, the swimmer, you know, her, her dad said he never wanted to push her and he never would push her. Um, but if she didn't show dedication, he wasn't going to drop her and fetch her from swimming every day. And he said he would do anything for her as long as she asked. So if she had to be at swimming pool five o'clock in the morning, he'd be the guy to take it. But if she wanted to miss a morning, he wasn't going to be the guy who said, you've missed a morning, shouldn't you go? He left that on her. And I thought that, that was very interesting. I enjoyed reading her book. Um, so uh, I think be supportive. You know, there's a reason the coach is the coach. Uh, they've been there. They've done it normally. A lot of the guys are good coaches. You know, if you're going to trust them, trust them in their entirety. Give them a, a fair, fair crack at it. And how are you as a tennis parent? Um, I mean, Luke and I have had our, our days where he's, he's fed up with me, doesn't want to practice with me. Um, and I think I found a, de a decent balance. He's got other coaches as well in South Africa. So I think that's been good for him to, to hear the message coming from, I guess, a different mouth. So, you know, I think... I've got a lot to offer. I hold them to very high standards. Um, I don't hold them to South African standards. I try and make them accountable to, you know, uh, world standards, what's happening in Spain or France or Italy. Uh, sometimes he doesn't like that. Sometimes he understands it. Uh, of course, it frustrates you when it's coming from dad. But also try and tell him I'm doing it out of love for him, right? I don't do it for me. My career has come and gone. And, and if anybody can share great ideas with you, it's me. I'm around it week in and week out. And I think the tough part for him, because he didn't travel a lot when he was under 14, under 15, under 16 as a junior internationally, is, is to see the level. So you're winning all the tournaments and, you know, wherever you are in South Africa and you think you're, you're the main man. But um, I would say that's the beautiful thing about being in Europe is you've got so many good players and it's easy to hop across to Germany or Spain and see the levels if you're the, and if you're the dominant force in, in Portugal, it's not that far to go to Spain and play some tournaments there. So, of course, because of our place on the, on the world map, it's not so easy for us and it's expensive to travel. And you're paying in dollars and pounds and euros. So for a, for a lot of um, kids early on in their careers, it's, it's not easy to do. You know, go to Orange Bowl if you can't afford it and just see what the level's like. Um, I wish I'd done a little bit more of that because we were going to do it in his last two years as a junior because he started, he, he grew quite late and he got very tall, first year 18s. And just when uh, we had funding for him to travel and get a feel for, you know, what the rest of the world is like out there, pandemic struck. So the two years of, the, of COVID um, was just untimely for him. But I think um, I'm a decent tennis parent. I probably give myself... Probably uh, an eight point three on the Dave Portnoy scale. <laughs> <laughs> and, and is it is it harder than you thought? Because that's I, I guess as a 
as a tennis person who's you know you're you're watching and 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 you're around some of the most dramatic matches of all time you know courtside and you're you're feeling that and 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 you've you've played yourself you've you've coached you've 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 been around at all the levels but then you stick yourself at the side and you've got your flesh and blood on the you're watching and you're feeling it it it's it's quite hard to understand that you, that it's going to be quite as difficult some of the emotions you go through have you been immune to that or is that something that you've actually had to really work hard on on dealing with and on did it surprise you i guess is the point i'm getting that um you hear it but it's only when you feel it that you realize how emotionally attached you get and there's very few tennis parents that I've spoken to who, who don't feel it. You, I mean, it affects you big time. I mean, there were some beautiful scenes this year at the US Open with Tracy Austin and his son Brandon Holt. Mm, it's lovely. I mean, literally nobody can speak to Tracy when Brandon's playing. Um, his girlfriend is there standing or sitting next to her, and that's it, man. She is just like so zoned in, you know, white knuckles everywhere. And yeah. I think it's the same for most parents. You feel it deep down inside because you know you've been there from the very beginning for for a lot of them um i think probably uh, the toughest part is is getting the balance right between pushing them to the nth degree because you know it's necessary and at the same time being a loving caring parent because i'm naturally a, i'm quite an affectionate guy uh, you know, my dad is French Mauritian and everybody's hugging and kissing. It's it's not too dissimilar to where you are in Spain. It's very much no. like that. That's how I grew up. So, there's, you know, there's a lot of that in my family. Um, so finding that balance between the discipline required and being tough on the court and no. saying, no, we're not leaving now. We need another 45 minutes of forehands and backhands because you've been bang average. And no. him saying, oh, well, it's not going to make a big difference. I'm rubbish today. I'm like, no, we're staying here. We've got to walk, work through it. Um, that's the hardest part, Dan. That's the hardest part. Because if I was the coach, if I was only the coach, I'd just say, no, you're not leaving the court. And we are going to do this and we're going to do it right. And I don't give a shit what you say. Yeah. And um, is he is he able to... So I'm I'm a tennis parent as well. So I'm, I'm a few years behind you. Yeah. But my boy is 11. He'll be 12 in, in a few weeks. And he's, he's already... You know, he's winning matches at Tennis Europe. So he won a little international tournament in Switzerland this summer. And yeah. I guess I I speak to him with three caps yes. because, because I'm the director of the Soto Tennis Academy. Yeah. He's, not, he's not the best behaved kid. He's getting better in fairness to him. But he has had to have warnings from me as the director. Um, I am currently his coach, you know, and, you know, there's coaches at the academy that help. And then I'm his dad. And, and I actually, what I find, and whether it works or not, I don't know, Robbie. But what I what I find is I try and say, okay, now I am talking to you as coach. Now I am talking to you as director of Soto Tennis Academy. You know, now I'm talking to you as dad and I, and I try and really define my messaging through mm -hmm. the, through the role. And 
Look, I, I think it's worked to a degree up until this age. <laughs> Put him as a 14, 15 year old. He's like, piss off, Dad. I know your dad and yeah. you're pissing me off. Do you know, I think it'll I think it'll oh. change. But how how have you managed those those boundaries and 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 Luke? Do you think he's able to give you the respect for the different roles that you're playing? Yeah, that's tough to know. Um, that would be a great question to ask him. Um, because, you know, and I always remind him over and over again, I do it because I love him and I want the best for him and I know what is required at the highest level. Literally, if I've said those three sentences a million times, um, I'm sure he's sick and tired of hearing it. And, you know, he does say to me, but you're my dad, right? You know, the fact that you're on TV doesn't matter to me. You know, other people might think it's great, but at the end of the day, you're my dad. Um, and, and that's what I see, as well as the tennis knowledge. Uh, you know, maybe they don't put you on a pedestal if you want to say that, like uh, some random person would because they see you on TV and they hear you all the time. Um, and, you know, they think you're a tennis aficionado because of that. But when it's your son, he doesn't think of you like that. So, but he's a good kid. He's a good kid. I would say... Um, he hasn't been pushed enough by his peers. That's what we've been lacking the most. Okay. And certainly this year, he's been he's out of juniors now and he's been traveling, you know, playing futures all around the world. And he has loved it. I That's think good. one of two things happen. You either become disheartened by the level because yep. it's too tough. Or you think, wow, this is what I want to be around. You know, and just you know, a couple of weeks ago, he came back from playing some some futures and he said to me, I can't tell you how much I enjoy practicing and being around much better guys on a, on a daily basis now. It's just, it's like the best thing. So he's certainly growing into to the challenges of being a decent player. Um, and I think a couple of years of college are doing well. He's at a good school. He's, he's with some good coaches. And I think the level in college tennis has gone up in, incrementally in the last five years, maybe eight years or so. More and more players are or dipping their toe yeah. in there for those transition years. They're not getting help from federations. And I think it's a great way to transition to the pros. And there's so many programs now where, you know, the coaches are happy to have Dan and Robbie along for two years, if it's only two years, and, and nurture them towards a pro career because they know if they've got a player with that yeah. kind of attitude who wants to be a pro, I mean, it can only be a good thing for the college team. So it ends up being a win-win situation. You know, the player gets great facilities, good coaching, and and the possibility for an education. Um, and uh, and the coach gets a player who's you know is committed to the sport and and uh, and wants to go further with it. So I think it's a win-win. Certainly in Luke's case, it's it's a, it's a huge plus. We're so pumped that they they're having him on board. And is that a bit of a full circle for you? That of you know you've come round to you said when you were that age you mm. had that decision you had that decision to maybe go to US college or to maybe go pro is are you the cynics will say us as tennis parents we will live our our lives through through the kids in some ways do you, do you feel separated enough that you can absolutely look at this as as Luke's tennis career and and what's right for Luke, or do you think there's some influence on your story jumping into jumping into decisions that have been made? 
That's a good question, Dan. Um, you know, I said to him this year, I said to him, look, if you show me that you can you can at least make semis or finals or win futures, then then you told me you're good enough that you can at least go pro. I don't have to worry too much about funding you because if you're wanting futures, you're probably breaking even on a weekly basis. It's not costing you know, me and your mother uh, a fortune to keep you out there. And it shows me you've got the level. For me, it's just yeah. about the level. Um, you know, and within a year of playing, that hasn't happened. So, you know, let's go and let's develop physically. You're going to be practicing with 10, 12 guys that are at least your level, probably better than you. And you're going to be able to do it in a, an extremely competitive environment. So do that for a year or two and, and see where you're at thereafter, right? Um, see if you still love it as much as you do. And it's not going to cost me an absolute arm and a leg because if you're not winning matches and I'm having to pay. Um, it's a lot of matches. To, that's a lot of matches to commentate on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You'll lose so, your voice. Totally. <laughs> Uh, and I want to be commentating on him, right? Because then he's playing the Masters 1000s and the Majors. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, we had that discussion at the beginning of the year. Um, and, you know, he hasn't shown the level yet that's required of him, I think, to go pro. So I think college is a fantastic option. But I think that, that there's some really smart advice there. And for those listening, it's like, uh, our barometers are very similar to I, I I I really believe unless you are regular semi-finals final wins of future events you're not quite ready you're not quite yeah. ready and and that might be an extra 12 months it might be an extra 24 might be an extra 36 of doing the right things but that tends to be and, and, it, and it always amazes me is how many kids aren't even winning matches and qualifying in futures and they think, yeah. no, 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 I'm not going to college. It's, it's, you know, if you are not, not going the distance in futures events, get yourself to college kids, get yourself to college, you know, go and go and develop physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, get some life experiences under your belt and, and go from there, you know? And I think, I think it's nice to have those little criterias and barometers for, for parents, coaches, and players are looking, that are looking into it. Yeah, and I think you'd be surprised how many players at college already during the summers are, are doing at least that, winning futures events and still going back to college. So, I mean, as I said, the level is extremely high. We did some recruit, uh, recruitment trips now in, in May, I think it was, April, May. Couldn't believe how good uh, the level was at college tennis. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for him. I don't think it's... Uh, uh, a step back at all. I think it's a, a nice incremental step forward. Robbie, I'm moving you into the commentator. You know, we talk about, we talk about the different hats, you know, yeah. and certainly, you know, you've got a few hats that you've played in your career. And my first question around this, you know, I, I need to know where you come up with these, these amazing words, these these statements, you know, is is this something that you preempt or is this just the in the excitement that the that the words just come together and come out? Yeah. Um, well, you kind of work on it, right? You you work on language just by reading um, uh, and then. You know, you try and expand your vocabulary 
because of it, Dan. So uh, if I do read good things um, and nice expressions, um, I'm quite diligent about writing it down so that it becomes part of my vocab. And, you know, you know, my list is 250 long right now of, of different ways of describing something that's exhilarating. And it started because in the early days when I was working for Tennis TV, ATP Media, um, and when, when highlights started to become a regular thing on the platforms, on the different social media platforms, I found myself describing great points in pretty much the same way. And it's only when it's in the highlight reel that it, you know, you get a point at, at one or you might get something at three or you might get something at five, three. When you're commentating live, you don't know what you've said back then. Yep. And you keep saying, oh, it's an unbelievable shot. Oh, it's an unbelievable forehand. Oh, what an unbelievable volley when you hear it in the highlights. And I thought, man, that's bang average, right? Um, I'm just using the same words. And of course, by nature, sports is repetitive, right? There's only so many ways you can describe. Uh, sorry, there's only so many ways you can you know, hit a forehand winner. And so I have to think of different ways of describing this. And that's what preempted me to get better with my language. Um, and then you become, and then it started to become something quite conscious for me when I'll be reading books on whatever it might be, or listening to a football game and Martin Tyler says something that's amazing, or John Drury comes up with something in a football context. And I think, well, if I tweak that somewhat, um, I can make that into a tennis term. So I'll take a little bit from that, add my own to it, and then, you know, make it mine sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's a, it's basically a collaboration of reading, listening to other commentators. Uh, I love the American sports because, you know, they show good enthusiasm. I find it, you know, just from a personal point of view, I'm, I'm naturally a passionate person. So for me, when, when a person's hit an unbelievable forehand, I don't understand how a commentator can just say, that's a great forehand there from that person. I don't understand that because... 90% of people at home are jumping out of their chair thinking, how the hell has he done that? Yeah. So, so why would you deliver it in such a vanilla manner? So all those things go through my mind, um, you know, when I'm trying to better myself as a broadcaster. And, you know, ultimately it is about language, how you describe something um, and how do you connect with the people at home? And I think because I was a little different early on, that kind of became my thing. And then you kind of just roll with it. That becomes your identity. Um, and as I've said on many occasions, I think there's, there's so many great analysts out there. There's a lot of people who commentate well. How do you, uh, Rob Koenig, differentiate yourself from everybody else? Because I certainly don't have you know the same CV as some of the people out there commentating who have been Grand Slam champions or you know top tenors in the world. So I've got to make sure I'm bloody damn articulate and I can make it highly entertaining for people at home. And then, you know, you've got to do your homework. Um, and I've been, I was very lucky. I think because I was so limited in my skill set, I was very good at analyzing the game and analyzing my opponents and, and picking out strengths and weaknesses. So when it comes to tactics in a match and I'm watching from the commentary position, um, I think one of my best skills I have is the ability to pick out tactics quickly and see what's going on and work out a player's strengths and weaknesses and then try and convey that message um, to, to the viewers at home. And 
you know, we've been there with Hawker since the very beginning. So that's given me an enormous amount of information to try and back up the tactics yep. that I'm trying to sell. Um, and, you know, the early days, we had so many good guys. Peter, who is now one of the main dudes there with Hawkeye, he was so good at feeding us information. And, um, and I was just so lucky. The timing of when I got into commentating was just so lucky. So uh, very blessed that I could do lead and color in the early days. You know, somebody former player normally they just do do the color pieces uh, the, the expert uh, analysis but you know from a, from an early age I had to learn how to lead commentate as well and of course as you get older and these new young guns come up and they want to do commentary um, I think it puts you in a, in a good position then because then you can be the lead commentator and you have a different role that you can fulfill God, I, love, I love that answer <laughs> because, I really do because if you if you take that answer and you stick that into any industry, any anything that we want our 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 kids to learn, you know, our our tennis players, you know, preparation, you know, like m- meticulous the way that you you've gone you've gone about it. It's not the answer I was expecting. I was, if I'm honest, I was half expecting. Yeah, just it's things come out. But it's it's it, it, it's not the case, and just like Roger Federer's incredible, you know, tennis elegance comes out at the end. It's the years and years of preparation that go into it that enable that to happen, and and for for people to to hear that story, to take to take that insight on board, I I I just completely love that answer and i think you know you sharing that really will go will go a long way but i i have to ask what's what's your favorite because we've got i've got a list here you know i've looked at all i mean some of the when you're saying like we're talking about making up words i mean there's some there's some good creativity you know for phenomena dal you know it's come out the 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 curriculous so I guess that, <laughs> so I guess this is Mr. Kyrgios on the court, you yeah. know. So so there's be you you literally have your own dictionary. What's the one for you that you can pinpoint and go? Do you know what that got so much traction, and and also gave you the belief that you know what what I'm doing is a good thing. I need to now really take this on board, and this needs to become my brand. Um, well, first of all, with that kind of stuff you're just having fun initially you know that's what that is and, and that's when I watch sport that's what I don't want it to be too serious because yeah, if yeah. I'm watching my mates you know and something stupid happens if me and you were sitting on a couch with I don't know if Nick Lester was on the one side of us and Owen Casey was on the other the first thing we'd do is we'd say something silly fun about what we've just seen we'd slap each other on the head say how's the guy doing that so that is just me having a bit of fun. But I think the one that um, got a lot of traction was uh, uh, reflexes like a mongoose on amphetamines when <laughs> Roger was involved in some ridiculous rally. I think it was with Djokovic. They were both at the net. They were pinging the ball back and forward. And, uh, you know, I said that, and that kind of went viral. And, again, it was the timing with, you know, tennis TV and those sort of clips going onto social media and Roger being at the peak of his powers and, so obviously that got a lot of traction. So yeah, favorites. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite. Sometimes 
I think the hardest thing for me, Dan, was in the early days is when you, you start to kind of get material and you realize that it's, it's a piece of material, but it's really only pertinent to one player. It might be a Djokovic or it might only be a, a Federer or a doll that you could use it with. And you crowbar in there and you listen to it back and you think, what the freaking hell was that? Be patient. Wait for the time and the place. You don't have to use it this week. You might only, you might have to wait six months to use it. And I think I learned that uh, that timing is everything. So when, when you've, you've got a nice little piece of material that you've picked out or you fine-tuned, um, is being patient and waiting. And I normally have a, a visual in my head of when the perfect time would be to use it. And um, that's when you get the satisfaction, that, that patience, the time comes, you're on the match. It's a big match. It's a big time in the match. And the guy, you know, pulls off a, a fantastic shot and, and you give the apt description that just kind of completes the picture. And you think, shit, yeah, that, that was good timing. Um, and, and I nailed that. And you feel good for it. But, you know, there's times where you bugger it up because you're impatient and you've got to remind yourself, man, just, you know, be disciplined. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot that I, that I enjoy um, and it never stops uh, quotes from famous sports people. I think trying to find the right time to use those. Um, I always think that's important. I think it, it adds a nice bit of, um, I don't know, maybe it shows up good articulation. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, you bring up a quote from Ed Moses or somebody who's been an absolute, absolute iconic and maybe another sport and bring it in, maybe something that Tiger Woods said or, so, you know, I'll make notes of those um, and then I'll use them in commentary. You know, off the top of my head, I use one from, from Edwin Moses. I love track and field. So that's why um, yep. people who don't know Ed Moses, I mean, he held, uh, he was unbeaten for nine years, nine months, nine days in the 400 meter hurdles. And when he finally lost, um, you know, he said, losing is not the end. In fact, it is the beginning of the inner dialogue upon which progress depends. And if you listen to those words, they are so pertinent, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'd save that sometimes when a player's played an unbelievable match, maybe he's had some match points and he's walked off. And, you know, you think about the camera cut, Bosch, you see the guy walking off the court there, he's down. But we know he's played a heck of a match. And, you know, that's when I would say something like that. Um, and hopefully he'll learn from it and be, be better from it. But it's so much better that it's, it's somebody like Ed Moses who said it rather than me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, you think of yourself, I think Very when good. I'm in a commentary position is, you know, how can I just sell that experience and make it the best for the fan? I'm very, very conscious about And of course, some people don't like my style of commentary. You always get people that might like something that's more vanilla, I'm, I'm more passionate and, and outgoing. Some people do like just a vanilla kind of commentary. So you get your critics, but uh, that's who I am. Um, I don't pay too much attention to it. How much have you done on radio? I radio. love radio. Uh, so, so ra and, and just to, to the listener, tell, yeah. us the, tell us the difference from a commentator standpoint. 
doing doing radio to TV? So depending on your role, if you're the expert, it doesn't change too much. The lead, Uh, the lead. Yeah, the lead commentator, obviously describing every single shot and how the rally is unfolding because obviously there's no visuals. So um, I do it throughout Wimbledon. I do radio commentary. It's the only event that I do do. So you have got to be so aware of what is going on. Your concentration has got to be so much more intense and laser-like and that you're always scouting the court to see if something's going to happen or has happened that you want to relate to to the listener because you don't want to miss anything. You know, especially if a, a ball kid has maybe fallen over, they've, they've slipped into the top and hit their head on the back of the, the court. You know, sometimes that might, you know, if we see it, on the TV, you see it, and it's, it's easy for everybody to see. But obviously for the listening, so I'm very conscious of, of trying to tell them as much information as I can, but at the same time, not giving them too much information because they've got to be able to digest that. Okay, this has happened, then deliver it in a nice incremental manner um, that I don't overload, overload them with information, but hopefully give them enough that they have a picture in their mind. So that's hard. When you are done with a five-set match as a lead commentator on radio, you are spent. Um, but I think it is just so good for your, for your vocabulary and being able to describe different things. And I love the fact that you can go off on tangents somewhat on radio, um, something you can't really do on TV. Uh, and that's great, especially when you're a co-commentator that's got good banter with you. And um, I don't know, you know, I love my music, my 80s music, and you can, you know, go on a tangent there to change events, you know, Mick Jagger's here watching the tennis, and then you go off about great, you know, songs from the Rolling Stones and, you know, stuff like that is just freaking awesome. I love that about radio. And it's, it's so special to, to listen to radio, good radio commentary, not like listening to the cricket. I know when I was, when I was growing up, we always had the cricket on in the car and it, it, there's something so special, I think, about good radio commentary. and But I'd never quite appreciated just how difficult it was, but also how special it was. And, and I was fortunate to do a little bit of commentary as the expert on Radio 5 a few years ago. And being next to Jonathan Overend, and we were at the French Open, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, he... He the way he's described that is is actually better than it even is here. You know, like you know, from from what Federer was wearing as he walked out to you know his cardigan yeah. to Boris Becker in the crowd to you know the 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 weather to just the the descriptive nature, yeah. and and I was sat there going, well, that was a good forehand that Federer hit on break point. And then I'm just like listening to Overend, just in complete awe, complete and utter awe of, of, of that ability, you know, and for, for someone to do that. So it's so impressive that you as a professional tennis player have, have come through your playing career and then you've learned your trade to be able to do that lead role because to do the, to do the lead role on radio for me is the, is the deluxe. It's the, it's the Rolls Royce of, of commentary. And, and like you said there, you absolutely love it. So how, 
was how much was natural? I know you say you work at it and you clearly do, but you obviously had quite a natural, natural way about you that somebody would put you in that lead position as well. Yeah, I've got to thank uh, Steve Tim and Ollie Ollie Neen from uh, uh, from Radio Bumble Channel for for giving me that opportunity. Um, but I'd been commentating for a while already, so I was familiar with TV, and you know, always listened to it during Wimbledon Radio Wimbledon when it was on. Um, and you know, Nick Lester, Nick had been doing a little bit of the radio commentary, and we'd commentate together, but he was always the lead. And I thought, you know, I'd love to give it a crack. And I just said to him, I said to, um, uh, to Tebby one day, if you need me as a lead commentator, I'm happy to give it a go. Cause I think I'll be okay. You know, I'd done lead commentating. I, I, I had a feeling as to what needed to be done in radio. Um, so it stick me on one of the outside courts and, and I'm happy to give it a go. And, you know, just repetition is the mother of skill. The more you do something, yeah. the better you get at it. I bet you if I put you in the commentary box now, second time around, you know, doing radio, you'd be better, right? And the third time yeah. you do it, you'd be even better. And by the fourth or fifth time, um, as Jerry Seinfeld calls it, tonnage. Everything's <laughs> tonnage, right? The more you can do, the better you get it. And you fine tune, you cut and you polish. Uh, and the big thing is learning from other people, like you say. So Jonathan would be your go-to guy. He's the guy you listen to and, you know, you make some notes. If you take it seriously, you know, if it's something that you want to be your job, if you're just dipping a toe in there and it's something you do once a year when uh, when an event comes around, that's different, right? But for us guys, who it's, it's our careers. So, yeah. uh, you know, I take that seriously. It's like, how do I get better? You know, I want... I want people to use me. I want to have this job. I love this job so damn much. I want to, I want to do it till I'm 85 and then I'll retire. My my next bit, I, I only have I, I I I'm very conscious of your time, and we've got our quick fire round as well, Robbie. That we uh, don't be, don't be. Um... <laughs> but my my next bit, and and I. I listened to you and I listened to you on the TV and I, you know, listened to you, listened to you here. Two things come to mind, one passion, but two knowledge, you know, and um, why wouldn't you? And, and I, you, you, you remind me a lot of Petch actually, when I spoke to Petch, because it, you guys have got the lenses. You've come from all the different lenses of the sport, you know, as, as players to a very high level, to, to, to coaching, to, to commentary, to, to tennis parenting, you know, and I think it, it gives you such a, a layered approach to, to the sport. Um, so then I asked a couple of the guys, I said, look, as I like to do, you know, I don't like to do these podcasts without doing my research and, and looking into it. And I said, look, Robbie's coming on any, any, any thoughts on where this, where this potentially goes. And, a couple of guys said to me, I'd love to know why a guy with so much knowledge isn't putting that to use as a tennis coach, you know, and yes, with your son, you are, is, is that something that is potentially in your future? Is that something that you feel you could combine? Is that something that you feel you're missing out on? Because certainly the game of tennis is missing out on having a, a tennis brain like yours, not passing that on to the next generation. I have a real passion for sharing knowledge, first of all. Um, 
if anybody wanted to listen, that that would be fine. I speak to some of the coaches of top 20 players um, quite regularly. They'll ask me about certain stuff and, and I'll give some feedback. But there's two things, I think. Um, one thing that the coaching carousel is, is a very finicky thing. Um, you know, you can be a hot shot for six months and then you're without a job six months later, right? And you don't know how that's going to shake out. Whereas I'm in a job now that's very stable. Uh, I know exactly how many weeks I'm working. You know, it's, it's good to me. I get paid well. So, you know, I can't complain about that. For me to go and coach a player now, um, I absolutely love being on the court. But it's, the job security is, is certainly not like what I've got now. Uh, and I'm making a good living out of it now. I'm not sure if there's many players that'd be, you know, willing to pay me as much. I know what coaches out there get paid. So, you know, there's certainly that, that consideration. Um, and it's not only about the money, but yeah, I've got a family, right? And I've got to think about my future. So from the, the money side of things, and of course, job security. That's, yep. that's the other one. It's, I mean, we know what this coaching carousel is like on the tour. You know, guys will use you, they'll promise you the world. And three months later, uh, that coach is without a job and, you know, contracts aren't a, on something that too many players sign up for. Um, I think there's a fair few people out there just, just happy to be on the tour and they'll work for, you know, not a lot of money just to be out there. Um, that's not for me. It's certainly not for me. But, I mean, being on the court is probably first prize. I think... What somebody like Darren Cahill does is, is you know, the best case scenario where you, you commentate your 20 to 25 weeks a year. And then you can also spend um, some of the weeks coaching on tour with, uh, with a tour level player. I think that would be fantastic. Um, yeah. You might, you, might have a player, you might have a player that needs you in three or four years time. I hope so. That's my pension plan, that player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that hopefully was... Luke Koenig will be on tour. And, um, you know, I, I see what's happening now with, like, Casper Rudin. You know, Christian, I cannot imagine how proud he must be of, oh. of his son. You know, I cannot imagine that pride. Um, and, and as we discussed earlier, those emotions that you feel every time your, your son steps out or daughter steps out in the court to play, uh, I couldn't imagine that. I'd be in tears. I certainly would be if Luke was playing, you know, Qualida Wimbledon and he was playing on court one or on centre court. Uh, he walked out there for the first time. I, I would definitely have to hold back the tears, man. Um, quite a, as I said, quite an emotional guy. Don't hold them back. Let it all out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if that happens, then when you get interviewed afterwards, say, look, I promise control the controllables all those years back. I was just going to yes. let it all, I was going to let it all, I was going to let it all out. Robbie, What's next for you? DK, I go home to South Africa. I've got a couple of weeks off now, and then I'll come back for Paris. Uh, I'll have a week off, and then I'll do Turin, uh, yeah, all on Amazon Prime. So be with the team, with uh, Pitch and Nick and Annabelle and uh, everybody else there, Daniela, Greg, Hennes. Um, yeah, a good bunch of people, man. It's, uh, it's always good fun. We have good discussions. We try and solve all the world's problems in the <laughs> green room. But Hennis uh, will tell us how good his golf swing is. So yeah, we'll have a, we'll have some we'll have some good chats, man. Some of the stuff that happens in that green room is almost as much fun as the commentating. 
Well, I, no, I, I can only imagine. And what a what a great way, like you said at the start, what a great way to be to be spending your life, you know, and and being being around. Yeah, I count my blessings every day to get paid to do something that I, that I absolutely love. That the novelty hasn't worn off yet. I hope it doesn't. Um, yeah, uh, very, very, very lucky. Before we move into into the quick fire, Robbie, I I, I just want to say thank you, you know, and thank you for what you're doing it for the tennis industry, you know, and giving us giving us the sparkle, you know, and, you know, we, we all, we all love listening to you. And, you know, I, I certainly do. I look forward to when I'm watching the match, you know, that extra, that experience that you give to me as a fan as well. So thank you for that. And thank you for being so generous with your time. You know, like I say, you have been on a very long list, but you, you've been there. I'm glad we've made it happen. I, I could talk tennis with you all day, all night, and, and I really do appreciate you giving up your time. Uh, DK, uh, I think everybody loves your loves your podcast. So it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm just annoyed that there's 179 guys ahead of me. I feel like I'm Tom Brady, man. 199th in the draft pick here. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, 180. It's not, it's not a, it's not a bad, it's not a bad number to be uh, at all. So are you ready? Are you ready for the quick fire? Okay, let's do it. What does control the controllables mean to you? It means exactly uh, what it says. Um, you know, you can only deal with uh, what's in front of you. There's certain things that you you simply cannot have control over. And when I started to grasp that concept, it, it made me uh, made me get a lot less stressed about situations than what I would normally be. Serve or return? Serve. Roger or Rafa? Roger. South African. Come on, man. <laughs> South African connection there. Your toughest ever opponent? A Swiss in singles by the name of George Bastel, who drummed me, I think maybe three or four straight weeks in a row back in the early days. Um, and as a doubles player, when I was playing at the higher level in doubles, probably the guy I hated playing the most was Daniel Nesta. Danny Nesta was a nightmare. That's exactly who Eric Buterak said last week. Okay. Yeah. Danny Nesta. But on George Bastel, yeah, you you had your validation the day that he beat Sampras on court to <laughs> exactly. Wimbledon. Forgot about that. That's right. Too you know, true. That that would have made you feel better. He can do it to Sampras. It's okay yeah. if he does it to me. Which player have you commentated on the most matches? It would probably have to be one of the big three. Um, yeah, I would have to say it would be pretty close between Roger and Rafa. Novak only started to come on the scene a little later. But yeah, I would go Roger, probably Roger. I'm going to throw in something here as well. The guy who's, who's cost me the most number of hours that I never will get back is Gilles Simon. And Andrea Seppi, I think uh, Gilles retiring at the end of the year, so we've got to give him an honourable mention. But uh, we'd be doing matches late at night. He'd be serving for the match in Miami at uh, 11.30 in the evening. And we just knew 
that he was going to get broken. He was going to lose the set, but he's going to win at 7-5 in the third and would be there for another hour and a half. My statistics, they could be incorrect. Oh, okay. I say that it's Novak Djokovic. Wow. I mean, how do you even begin <laughs> looking for those things? It says 27 times. Now, the, the you could tell me this is completely incorrect and and you could easily prove this and, and then I'll, I'll take take it back. But my this is what my research says. Now, the next question okay. is who what was the hardest match for you to ever commentate on you never really i mean a boring match is always a hard match to commentate on because you always want to try and make shit shine and you don't want to be um too critical of the player because you know what it's like when you're having a bad day so I would say any crap match that you're commentating on, you get those on a weekly basis where the level is just poor. It might be windy. Both guys are playing rubbish. And, and I think it's probably a good time just to remind the listeners that, you know, there's a lot of matches that are bang average throughout the course of a week. Not every match is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And there's a highlights reel. So um, I think that would be the best way to answer that. Um, is that, you know, just, just a bad match and trying to get the balance right. I think that's the hardest thing. You don't, you don't want to be too critical of a player because you've been in their shoes. But it's very important as well, Dan, for your credibility when the match is bad to say, hey, listen, you know, you can't say Dan Ken is playing, he's playing some, some good tennis when it's very clear to even you know, someone who doesn't watch a lot of tennis, that what he's seeing on his screen is bang average. And how the hell can Robbie Koenig be trying to tell me that's good? So you have to be aware of your credibility in that moment too. So you've got to find a, a, a nice, constructive way to say why Dan is shit today and do it in the best possible manner, right? And explain why, rather than just criticizing, say why. That's the big thing. Yeah. Look at the number of unforced errors on the forehand. Look where the forehand's landing. He's landing in the middle of the court when he does make it. But look how big the misses are. Bring up the Hawkeye graphics. Say, look, his misses on average are a meter. It's not even close to the line. So you try and back it up and, and give them some good information rather than just hammering a player into the dirt. Do you think that I, it's not so quick fire because I'm about to share a story, but I, I commentated at the US Open on Andy Murray against Feliciano Lopez, 2012. And it was on Louis Armstrong. And we know that Andy doesn't like Louis Armstrong court for a start. And he, you know, it was one of those matches where Andy walked out like a bear with a sore head. You know, you could see it from, you know, like just from the, from the word go, he was, he was, he was ready to gnarl at whoever, whoever he could gnarl at. And, and actually Feliciano, I don't know if you were you were on that match or if you remember the match, but Feliciano should have absolutely won that tennis match. I, I my memory was there was like a couple of tie breaks, third and fourth set that Andy sneaked sneaked somehow. Uh, more from Feliciano's bad player than anything. And honestly, watching Andy, it was like watching an eight year old the way he was acting. It was just, and and I was very inexperienced, haven't done this a lot of my life. And know Andy pretty well as a player. You know, we used to play against each other. And I was so conscious of 
what Andy was going to think if he heard what I was saying. And, and, and it definitely, and that's, that would be something if I did commentary in future, I'd have to, you'd have to get used to, but it got to the point where I couldn't not say something exactly what you're saying, because I was like, well, his, his behavior was just so bad. Is that something that comes into your mind at all? And has there been a difficult moment on that or are you able to completely separate? No, um, I don't think I've had ever had any major fallback from from somebody. I, I mean, you know, some of the players you know it, and and they'll come up to you and go, "I heard what you said about my forehand. I heard what you said. It wasn't that bad, was it?" You know, and when you've got your facts lined up, that's when you're in such a strong position. Yeah, I think you know that's why your delivery is so important, Dan. And I'll say to whatever, I'll say to Sasha, but Sasha, you know, you made 22 unforced errors in your forehand in the first set alone, not even the match, but the first set. That's why I said it was shit. Okay, see what you mean. But it's 22 a lot. Well, on average, anything under 10 is, is, is probably average. So 22, you know, you're three or four times worse, than two or three times worse than, than anybody else. Do you want me to lower the bar for you? That's always my go-to. Do you want me to lower the bar? Do you want me to judge you by the lowest of standards? Or do you want me to judge you by the very highest of standards? What do you want? So you put the ball straight back in their court if you know something like that did happen. So if you want me to lower the ball, no problem. I can, you know, yeah. five to ten, maybe that's where you slot in. But if you want me to, you know, measure you up against one through five, that's where I'm going to hold you accountable. What do you think of that? And there's, there's really only one answer if they're serious about the game, right? Good. Very good. Medical timeout or not? No. I, I would uh, I would definitely get rid of it. You've got the change of ends to sort yourself out, massage yourself. Nine times out of ten, it ends up being a massage. Nothing more than that. Singles or doubles? I wish I'd been a great singles player, but the camaraderie in doubles is fantastic. But uh, singles first. Uh, doubles was because I could still get to do what I loved. Um, I just wasn't as good at doing it in singles as I was in dubs. Five sets or three sets for the men at Grand Slams? It's a pregnant pause and he says five, only just. <laughs> How long is that going to hang on for? don't know, man. This game is so physical, it's, it's beyond a joke. It's beyond a joke how physical the sport has become. And I just, I just wonder for the longevity of it, um, for the longevity of careers when you've got a calendar that is so long and those grueling matches, they take, tell you what, you, you age in dog years when you play those kind of matches. Less is more, you said earlier. Yeah. I mean, some of these three set matches that you get these days, you know, the level, yeah, guys will play for three, three and a half hours. You know, when, when people go and watch a soccer match, it lasts 90 minutes. We don't complain that it hasn't hasn't gone on for longer, right? You know, just about every sport has a you know definitive timeline on. And uh, again, we're wanting more and more. I absolutely love five setters. I, I, I do see the ultimate challenge in it. But you can't tell me after three hours, four hours of playing, which sometimes we get in three sets that, you're not proven that you're an incredible athlete, but uh, there is uh, certainly the old 
old guy in me that that loves five setters. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? I don't like Davis Cup in the format that it's in. And I think the ATP Cup has become a very expensive event to have. And I think there might be fine-tuning it to going on. But uh, we need a combined event. And I think that's what the ATP Cup will morph into, um, which I think is fantastic. A combined event with men and women, I think that would be first prize. Radio or TV? Radio is the ultimate challenge. Radio is the ultimate challenge in, in broadcasting, as we discussed earlier, I think. Um, TV is certainly more glamorous and you know if you're in front of the camera a lot um, then people get to get to know who you are but you hit the nail on the head when we were discussing radio uh, and you're talking about Jonathan Overend's ability to describe a situation that's that's properly difficult and who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables Jason Goodall spent the most time in the commentary box with Jason. If it was a somebody in, in my field, he springs to mind. But it's tough to get him on these things, man. <laughs> he's a recluse. It's tough to get hold of the guy, but he's got some some great stories. Um, and he was a you know a great guy to have alongside me for so long. I learned a lot from him. I'm gonna let you have a second one because part of the deal is that you get somebody in. So if you can't get Jason, who's the next one? Um, I don't know anybody, Robbie. Do you know what I mean? I've got to, the only way I make this podcast work, I've got to, I've got to wheel and deal my way through and get the get the it, next guests on. You know, I know it's it's always great for the podcast if you can have uh, like you know famous people on and, and well known people on. But when you called me up, you mentioned a, a mutual friend of ours and Ben Heron, who I think is one of the best developmental coaches in this country and what he's doing and you know just to have a discussion with him alone on that's proper coaching you asked me about coaching on the tour i think it's very glamorous but the real skill is developing players that that 10 to, to 18 years of age you are the guy responsible for putting a lot in place uh, uh, benny would be right up there with one of the best development coaches he's seen a, a lot more than most people in this country and the variety that he's seen and the success he's had you know that's one of my favorite topics Dan we could have we could chat for hours just on you know how do you how to develop players you know what's the right way to go about doing it? and I think he's had more experience than most on the court day in day out Jack Draper you know 10-15 players we could mention girls and boys Ben, Ben, I completely agree with you, but he's episode one three seven. He beat you. Oh, he, did he? <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he, he? We, we, I'll have to send you that one because yeah. it was, it was. And Ben's, Ben's also not a one to necessarily jump onto these, you know. And like yeah. James Trotman the same, you know. But I've managed to get them, to get them out and 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 pick their brains a little bit, and they were both brilliant. You know, I've got a lot of admiration for, for both of them in terms of the development that they've done with, with many players over the years. But what I would love to do, okay. and I'll maybe speak to Ben, I'd love to get yourself and Ben on and have a big 
player development chat at some point, you know, and I think that would be a really cool conversation to have. And and I think I think people would take a lot from that. So maybe that's a one that we'll look into it as well. But Robbie, you're a you're a star, honestly, coming on and and doing what you've done. Loved having you. Keep up the great work and and all the best to Luke as well. You know, he's he sounds like he's on a on a nice path and he certainly got someone fantastic in his corner as well. So oh, thanks a lot. Thanks, DK. Right back at you. Um Keep up the great work with uh, the podcast. And again, thanks so much for having me uh, as, as a guest on it. I always end up with a with a smile on my face when I listen to Robbie. And I certainly did from that chat and listening back as well. And I'm sure, Vicky, that was one of the easier ones to edit. He gives so many golden nuggets. Well, it was, but you guys spoke for so long. It was really hard to crop anything out and shorten it because as I was listening, I was just thinking, oh, that bit's great. Oh, this bit's really good. Oh, what a great story. It really was a great chat that you had. Um, But as you mentioned at the start, I mean, Robbie has been a player, a coach, a commentator. And for me, I thought he had such good advice, really helpful advice for tennis parents. I mean, obviously, we're on that path at the moment. We're trying to improve all the time. Getting some things right feels like we're getting most things wrong. Um, So I was kind of making notes (laughs) as he was chatting. Um, As a tennis dad, not a coach, what were your key takeaways? I think the first thing for me is, is, and, and, and I know there's a lot of tennis parents listen to this, the intensity of emotion is incredibly strong you know it comes from within and that's something that somebody like Robbie who's been around the game for so many years feels that you know he touched on Tracy Austin at the at the US Open you know Casper Ruud's father you know there's 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 many in the past parents that have been tennis players but it doesn't mean that you're immune from from those feelings so i think the first thing i would say is the the empathy i have towards tennis parents and i think tennis coaches become better tennis coaches the day they become parents you know and I think that's probably the first thing that I would I would take away I'll, I'll use Robbie's three that I and I liked the three I like the three words he used he said team you know he likes and and I agree with this I think it's a lonely sport so especially in your younger years your formative years try not to do it in a one-on-one way you know, do it in a group setting. Yes, of course, have your private classes and have your individualized programs, but it's really important that you have your peer group to push you, you know, to bring you back into line, you know, to that teaches you so much. And I think team sports do, and we can have that team sport. So that'd be the first thing. The second thing, he said something, and, and, and I link this with the second word he used, he always knew that there needs to be a time of pain in order to bring some success. And ultimately what he's saying there is discipline. You know, you have to have discipline through those times of pain. You know, nothing comes for free. And I think the understanding, Rafa uses the word suffer. You have to suffer. So I think that's something that absolutely all tennis players, all tennis parents, all tennis coaches need to know and people in life to do anything well, you you have to go through that period of pain. And then the last one, the importance of parental communication. You know, it is a team. Everyone's going towards the same goal, you know, and, and it's so important that we all go along on that same journey. Just the small amounts, just little little bits every day, every couple of days tennis coaches have with, have with your parents. They're not after 
constant praise but they just want to know how their how their little little emma's doing how their little johnny's doing you know is he is he is he all right you know he knows that some things are happening at home and and actually is that transferring onto the tennis court you know in making sure that communication is strong and that communication loop is strong so i would say those three ways that he wrapped it up i think were a really really nice way and nice pieces of advice for anybody to take on board and on the topic of advice and parents, we get asked all the time about US college. The most frequent question being, well, the main question being, is it the right option for my child? Is it the best move for them? And I think you both gave some really nice guidelines on that for parents and players. And, and, and I think I'd like to say as well, though, Vicky, before that, it does depend on where the player is is aiming to go what's the ambition what's the intention now if the ambition and the intention is to be a top professional tennis player the guidelines we spoke about absolutely ring true you know and and, and ultimately unless you are winning futures events on a regular basis going deep into futures events on a regular basis you are not quite at the level yet to be a professional tennis player so so you are better off again depending on your financial setup and you know if you can find the right university you are you are you will tend to be better off going that route to develop until you are then ready to go in some people their ambition isn't to be a top professional tennis player you know and that's absolutely fine as well and that's why I would just say to everybody out there have your eyes open to what it is that you want to achieve you know at least have a have a pretty strong picture of what you want to achieve then that will also help with your decision making process as well and as Robbie said you know there's there's college tennis players that are winning futures left right and centre you know Cameron Norrie was winning challenger events ATP challengers and he went back to college so it, it is everyone does have their own personal journey on it but I think it is nice to hear people that have seen it done it and now going through it with their own children to, to take some of those criterias and 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 keep it keep it realistic guys you know don't don't think that you're the outlier who can't win a tennis match in a in a in a in an ITF tournament that all of a sudden you're going to be top 100 within 12 months it ain't going to happen it might happen in 6 7 8 years but you've got to you've got to understand that there is a process along the way i always find these conversations really useful for us, for our children, and also all the players at the academy. Um, Robbie just has so much experience, and I really liked the suggestion about bringing Ben Harron in to talk about player development with Ben and Robbie. I think that would be an awesome episode. We're going to have to see if we can make that happen. Well, yeah, well, listeners, let us know. You know, if it's public demand, you know, then I'll I'll get on to Robbie and Ben. I mean... I'll get on to Robbie and Ben. Uh, they, they for me, are, are brilliant tennis minds and just lovely guys. So, you know, if I have an excuse to spend a couple of hours with, with Robbie and Ben, then I would be absolutely delighted to do it. So reach out, let us know, you know, drop us a message. It's about time we heard from some of you as well. You know, we like this to be interactive. You know, this is your podcast. So make sure that you guys are engaging. You will see in the notes all of the different ways that you can get in touch with us and we look forward to hearing some of your requests but I, I can't go without Vicky without mentioning 
I know what you're going to mention. <laughs> just his ability with words and that's the one thing I was thinking about you know often when I listen back to your chats and I'm editing the episodes I'll be driving in the car later that day or a few days later and there's usually one thing or a couple of things in particular that I am thinking about and for this one it was the 250 words I said he went away and he writes down ways of describing amazing exhilarating fantastic brilliant 250 I was like, I want that list. <laughs> I, it, it's it's great, and, and and I listen back to these podcasts, and I apologise to you listeners because my vocab has to get better. Too many times I pick up, oh my, I'm saying that stupid word again, whatever it might be. Um, so I'm completely with Robbie, but it takes me into it's the preparation, it's the professionalism in in whatever you do. You know, and whatever you do, and I think I use the example of Roger Federer, you know, what comes out is grace, elegance, but what people don't see is what goes in. And and what comes out when we hear Robbie in commentary is this ease of using words and this this array of vocabulary that of, of describing and bringing things to life. But what goes in is hard work. And, and it's pretty much the same with anything that you ever see in life. You know, nothing comes easy, nothing comes for free. And, and, and I think Robbie's commentary and his insight into his commentary was a fantastic. Have you got another word for fantastic? <laughs> was like a mongoose on amphetamines. <laughs> no, no stealing, you've got to come up with your own word. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, brilliant, Robbie, and, and that certainly inspired me to, I need to get reading and need to, well, it's need the to growth get your mind, list. Well, it's the growth mindset, isn't it, that we talk about so often. You know, he's looking at ways of improving himself still in a career that he's been in for a while now, and he, like you said, he's gone away, he's done the preparation, he's done the hard work to make himself as best as he can be for us watching. Absolutely. Well done, Robbie. And we're getting closer to 2023, guys, and 2022 coming to an end. And for us here at Control the Controllables, we've, this is our 35th episode of 2022. We will be working hard over the next few days to try and bring some of our favourite moments of 2022. So watch out for that one. And then let's see what 2023 has for us. We have some great guests to start the year off. We've got Henry Patton and Julian Cash, who are the record breakers of the ATP Challenger Tour and their main draw in Australian Open. We've got them coming to you. We've got Tamara Zidanjek, who will be joining us to discuss her year as she moves on into also the Australian Open. And then Dave Miley, who is the current tennis director in Kazakhstan, someone who worked extremely high up at the ITF. Those are some of our guests that will be coming up early in 2023. And we've got loads more on our list. We've got, you see my WhatsApp list. It's it's red hot with names in the tennis world. And we'll continue working hard to bring these amazing guests for you. But you guys, stay safe. I hope you have a wonderful few days with your families before we move into 2023. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>